Welcome to Meals for Maturity, Bible talks to help you mature as a follower of Jesus, by Pastor Dom Fiocco. Meals for Maturity is all about helping us grow in our understanding and application of God's Word because of the gospel of all grace in Christ. Uh, Part of my motivation for giving these Bible talks, which are not in a church setting, but they're being recorded in my study at home, part of my motivation is because I think sadly that more and more Christians know less and less of our Bibles. And so I want to help change that and enable us to listen to more of God's holy word whenever you're able to find 20 or so minutes across your busy week. Another motivation for doing Meals for Maturity is more selfish on my part. That is, I want to explore and teach other parts of the Bible that I might not have had opportunity to do so all that easily. Because my wife and I have been involved in church planting across many years, so often that means I just need to keep going back to basics and laying a good foundation for these young churches planted. And so I sometimes miss out on teaching certain parts of God's Word that I might have had opportunity to do so if our churches weren't so young. See, when a church is more established, then we can go to other parts of Scripture, but but that takes time for the church to get there. Anyway, that's a couple of reasons for starting Meals for Maturity and digging deeper into something like the book of Esther. I hope you found it helpful. This is the final talk in this series of God Behind the Scene, the ordinary, extraordinary outworkings of God behind the scene. And I hope you've seen that and appreciated that. And in lots of ways, the story of Esther is Cinderella-like. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful young Jewish orphan girl who becomes the Queen of Persia. Once upon a time, in a faraway kingdom, a radical transformation happens to a little girl who saves her people. We could read the story of Esther in that way, as long as we add a couple of extra key points. Firstly, this is a true story. So once upon a time, yes, it was set in a time, in place, in history, in a Persian empire, in a city found today in modern-day Iran, 480 years before Jesus. And secondly, that we recognise that all that happens across this incredible story, everything that happens has the fingerprints of Almighty God over it. A God who is sovereign and in charge of the rise and fall of kings and queens and peoples and lands and empires. The fingerprints of Almighty God who is the one who does the saving and the preserving of Esther's people, the Jews, through ordinary human means. And thirdly, that we realise that though the story of Esther is just that, it is a true story. And it happens to be one of the 66 books that is living and active and being breathed out by God to us as Holy Scripture. And therefore, in the words of Romans 15 verse 4, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So the book of Esther is written for ancient Jews as they wait for the first arrival of the Messiah, And it's also written for modern-day Christians as we wait for the second arrival of King Jesus, that we might be people of hope and endurance through the glorious gospel. And so now we come to the end of Esther chapter 9 and perhaps one of the shortest chapters in the Bible, chapter 10, with its three verses. I'm very thankful for my friend Jen from a previous church who has read so well this amazing story to us. So let's hear one final time as she reads... Esther chapter 9, verse 20, to the end of chapter 10. 
And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast per, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they call these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abahel and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had ab obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10 King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honour of Mordecai to which the king advanced him are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The end of chapter 9 and then into chapter 10 completes the picture of more feasting and festivities across the book of Esther. We've come full circle in the story. Remember, chapter 1 starts with a bang and a Gentile feast and party. Well, chapter 9 and 10 ends with a bang and a Jewish feast and a party. The Jewish festival, still celebrated today by the Jews, is called Purim. And the last few verses in chapter 9 and into chapter 10 tells us how it all works, its origins and its practices. But before we go there, did you realise that to live in Susa, the setting of this story, and to live as Esther and Mordecai did in the Persian Empire, uh, was to feast a great deal, a little bit like Singaporeans who live to eat and eat to live. Hopefully, this population in Esther's time had a good exercise program going, maybe a national Pilates program to help keep the weight off from all the feasting and festivities going wrong, anything to keep the country active. Well, across the book of Esther, there are feasts and parties happening 
all the time. I mean, some people count 10, others 8 or 7. Sometimes it's tricky to work out when one party ends and the other begins. In any case, the book of Esther is surrounded by feasts and banquets. So the Persian catering companies and the Uber camel deliveries were good businesses to be involved in, not to mention vineyards, because there seems to be lots of wine uncorked across this story as well. The word translated for us here, banquet or feast, turns up only 24 times across the entire Old Testament, and 20 of those times are actually found here in Esther. So it's a big theme across the book. And it's only right that our unnamed author should finish with another party, another banquet. But in doing so, we can be reminded that God is a big fan of the banquet. He's a big fan of the special celebration, enjoying the food and drink of his creation, enjoying relationships that come from eating together. And there's two banquets or feasts that come to mind for the follower of the Lord Jesus. The first is called the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, even though the Christian church no longer celebrates this with a banquet or a feast. It is a worthy symbol of celebration. It's a, a symbol of a feast to remind us of Jesus' death and resurrection, of victory won for us over sin, and our deliverance story found in Christ alone by faith alone. And secondly, there is a future one that Jesus and the New Testament writers speak about, the heavenly banquet, the, the wedding feast of Revelation chapter 19. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper or to the banquet of the Lamb. In the sight of God, feasting and celebrating his goodness and grace toward us in his beloved Son is worthy of a grand party. And the one that God puts on in the new heavens and the, earth, and the new earth will be the best of them all. But returning to Esther chapter 9 verse 20, we get the details of what becomes the banquet or the feast day known as Purim. The name Purim comes from the word pur, which is the word for casting the dice or casting the lot, which took place, remember, back in chapter 3 verse 7. And in another humorous twist of irony across, across this story, this casting of the lot was done by Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to determine the day of destruction for the Jews. But now it turns into this celebration for the Jews as their day of deliverance. How ironic. There's lots of irony across the drama of Esther to show us really that God is in total control even when various people think that they are. Irony is usually a humorous occasion or expression which says or communicates the opposite of what was intended. Let me illustrate using another Esther-like Jewish story of irony, and this one from last century. Back in 1918, a German soldier was awarded the Iron Cross first class. The Iron Cross is a war medal. He was awarded it for displaying personal bravery and general merit in times of warlike conditions. The officer who made this recommendation and pinned the medal on this corporal was Captain Hugo Gutmann, a German who happened to be Jewish, who fought during World War I. And the soldier who he pinned the medal on was Corporal Adolf Hitler, who would, of course, wear this medal, the Iron Cross, through his entire life. And after the Nazis came to power a few years later, Captain Goodman let it be known publicly by saying, I pinned the Iron Cross on Hitler. And of course, the Nazis objected to this. They actually didn't believe that that could ever happen, saying no Jew could have ever done this. 
But sadly, Captain Goodman was arrested for a short period of time because of his outburst. And when he was released, he kept repeating to the Nazis his wartime recommendation and the pinning of the Iron Cross on Hitler. Well, after his third arrest, he decided it was time to move to America, where he settled in St. Louis in Missouri. But that, how that, how's that for irony? A Jewish soldier pinning a war medal on Adolf Hitler. Well, in the story of Esther, by God's sovereign hand at work, we have the opposite irony happening here, don't we? Where Haman, the enemy of the Jews, casts a lot, he throws a dice to decide which date to annihilate the Jews. But this moment is full of irony. And later on, Haman was to parade Mordecai through the streets of Susa and declare what a hero Mordecai actually is. It's almost like Haman was having to pin a medal of honour on Mordecai. How ironic that the casting of the lot to determine this day of destruction for the Jewish people turns out <clears throat> to be a celebration for the Jews as a day of deliverance. This idea of casting a lot, throwing a dice or purr, as it's called here, is a common theme across the Old Testament. And in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, we get this important reminder. The lot, or the purr, is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Or the New Living Translation puts it very simply, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. And similar in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, right in the middle of that chapter, we read, in their hearts... Humanity plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And these verses from Proverbs, these Bible truths, bring us to live with this tension of knowing that our human choices and responsibilities matter, but at the same time, God is sovereign and is in total control of our lives and his world. And in Proverbs 16 and across the entire Bible, we must learn to live with this mysterious interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And perhaps there's no greater display of this than in the Easter events concerning the death of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember in Acts chapter 4 when the apostles pray, Lord, we know that Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And then remember back in Acts chapter 3, as Peter speaks to the Jewish leaders about the healing of a lame man, he says, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by your own power or godliness we've made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate. You disowned the Holy One and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. In the Easter story, we have human responsibility, yet mysteriously, God remains sovereign. And Proverbs 16 verse 33 still rings true for the Christian. We may throw the dice, we may make a decision, but the Lord determines how that dice falls. Which is one reason why prayer is vital for our Christian lives. Because God, because God remains sovereign and he's all-powerful to change, to intervene and to work out his glorious purposes for us in Christ Jesus. And the book of Esther surely shows us that. When events seem out of control for Esther and Mordecai, 
when Haman and the king determine to ruin and destroy the entire Jewish race, when evil is poised to triumph, God is at work. God behind the scene, the ordinary, extraordinary outworkings of God behind the scene. And the story of Esther is showing us that God has kingship over all empires and peoples and times, that even when the lot is cast, he will use human choices, even evil plans of a Haman to bring about the fulfilment of his covenant promises originally made to Abraham and then made to us as children of faith found trusting in Jesus. And the story of Esther is also showing us that, somewhat humorously, that despite King Xerxes' great power and wealth and position, he doesn't really control anything across his vast Persian empire. I don't know if you picked up, but across the entire story of Esther, King Xerxes never really makes his own decisions. He's always calling on others for ideas and recommendations and outcomes, whereas the unseen God is the one who is actually making things happen all the time. So in Esther chapters 9 and 10, the Jewish feast day, this banquet of Purim is established and it's actually written down for the coming generations to celebrate. And Purim and the book of, es and the book of Esther is a remembrance feast. It's a great reversal story of how the tables have been turned by God's unseen hand of providence. Purim is a remembrance of when sorrow turned to joy, when fasting and mourning turned to celebration and feasting. Esther and Purim is a great rescue story, a great recounting of how the Jewish people, God's people, how they are spared. And it's a story of ultimate deliverance, which enables the people of ancient Israel to continue and so brings about our ultimate deliverance story found in the birth of another Jew and one who is born to save his people from their sins. So what do we do as Christians with this Jewish feast, this celebration called Purim? Well, as always, we look to the New Testament to see what it is that the Lord Jesus and his apostles do with the Old Testament and in particular with this event. And there in the New Testament, we find that the story of Esther, this story of deliverance and reversals, is captured fully in and through our Lord Jesus, our Saviour, who was born to a Jewish mum by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the significance of Purim and its festival and feastings and celebrations of victory over our enemies has now been transformed and fulfilled by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The message of the death of Jesus is, taking the words from John 12, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And the message of the, resur of the re resurrection of Jesus is from John chapter 14, verse 19, because I live, you also will live. And the deliverance of the Jewish people at Purim in the book of Esther, is a foretaste, it's a preview of our deliverance that comes about in Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a, it's a foreshadowing, if you like, of the New Testament story where even the nations, even Gentiles, are delivered and they're redeemed through the cross and the empty tomb. So as Christians today, we are not under any obligation to celebrate or to feast or to party at Purim any more than we are to take part in other Jewish 
festivals from Old Testament days because now all these celebrations, all these remembrance parties, these feasts and festivals have been absorbed into the Christmas and Easter drama, the story of God becoming a man, even a Jewish man, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem, to deliver us from our sins and to reconcile sinful humanity back to our holy God. And in perhaps one more great twist of irony in the story of Esther and Purim, isn't it amazing, well, I find it amazing, that this New Testament deliverance story in Christ involves both Jewish and Gentile people who place their trust in the saving events of the cross and the empty tomb. As Ephesians 2 and Galatians 3 remind us, we are all children of Abraham, Jew and Gentile, if we place our faith in Christ alone. And there is now no dividing wall of hostility between Jewish believers and Gentile believers and Persian believers. We are all one in Christ. And if you turn to Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost, the birth of the early church, we read there in Jerusalem as Peter declares the gospel message of Christ crucified yet risen from the dead, that it's highly likely that the residents of Susa are actually represented among what we read the, uh, the Parthians, the Medes and the Elamites who are there on the day of Pentecost experiencing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That would be enough to make Haman turn in his grave, I think, and be even more humiliated. You see, God's grace knows no bounds of race, of culture, of language, of people groups. Even the Medes and Persians can be saved. Well, let me finish with this uh, final word about the story of Esther, a story that, as I've mentioned along, does not really provide us with lots of great examples of what it means to honour and follow God, a book from our, in our Bibles that doesn't even mention God or give us godly people to follow. So what, is it, what, is it, what can it teach us about trusting in God's hand of providence? Well, author and Bible scholar Karen Jobes, who I think has written perhaps the best commentary on Esther, tells it like this. She says, she writes, Across most of our lives, we cannot see the end of the matter from the beginning or the middle. However, the story of Esther assures us that we do not have to. Which is what it means for us now to walk by faith and not by sight. To go on trusting the unseen hand of God, to work in creative and unexpected ways in your life and mine. Trusting the unseen hand of a good and gracious God to work in extraordinary ways, sometimes through very ordinary means and peoples. I don't know, maybe next time you step on a Persian rug or pat a Persian cat or eat a Persian falafel, you might like to remember our studies in the book of Esther. May God continue to help you and me keep trusting him and his purposes and his plans for us in Christ Jesus for such a time as this. Amen.